Hey, everyone. Welcome to our Men of Valor podcast. I'm Casey McCauley, and I want to thank you for being part of this ministry. I want to commend you for your commitment to study God's Word in community, in a harvest group. And if you aren't part of a harvest group, you can sign up at harvest.church groups. So why join a group? Because we believe that discipleship happens together. We're continuing our study in the Minor Prophets, and we've come to the short but the powerful book of Haggai. As we begin, let me ask, have you ever had incomplete goals, unfinished projects, a long list of to-dos that never seem to get checked off? Have you lost the motivation and focus to continue a task? Well, of course you have, and I have, and that's because we're human, we're sinful, and we can lose focus to put off the most important things for smaller things. Whether it's a New Year's resolution, a DIY project on the honeydew list, a never-ending inbox of unread emails, we all know what it's like to start strong and then to taper off. Where motivation is replaced with complacency, focus turns to distraction. What matters most is replaced by things that may even be good, but they aren't the best. And the same is true in following God's commands. God has spoken, and we are to listen and obey and experience the joy of following him. But all too often, and as we even see in the book of Haggai, we can lose our focus. To fail to plan is the plan to fail. And the I'll get to it eventually perspective is not a recipe for success when it comes to following God's commands. The point is that delayed obedience, postponed obedience is not obedience at all. And when you disobey, you fail to flourish. And that's what we see in this prophetic book of the Bible. It's been observed that Haggai's prophecies are the most precisely dated writings in the Old Testament, as you'll notice all of the specific dates that are listed. Haggai is the second shortest book in the Old Testament with just 38 verses, but don't let its size fool you. It's so helpful and hopeful. Haggai gives four prophetic sermons over the course of four months, all with the goal, purpose, and God-inspired vision for the people to repent and rebuild to turn from their sins and to truly worship the Lord. And you know what happens? Well, here's the spoiler alert. God's people repent. They listen and obey. They follow God's word. Shocking, right? Well, of course, this shouldn't be an anomaly. We see that many of the Old Testament prophets put forth their prophetic cry and yet were often ignored and neglected. But Haggai is a unique example of God's people responding In fact, according to chapter 1, verse 15, it looks like they responded just 23 days later. And so this book of Haggai stands out as a positive example, one that we can still learn from today, to repent, to return, and ultimately to rejoice. We see here that repentance leads to rejoicing. Returning to have God in his rightful place in our hearts and lives, to walk in his ways, to worship him, and to find in him all that we need. Here's a few key themes of the book. It's about the importance of focusing on what matters most, having the right priorities. The importance of the temple of God, the house of the Lord, as a covenant symbol for Israel to have true worship and identity. And it's about the faithfulness of God, as he is the God who renews his covenant promises to David's descendants. And all throughout this book, there's an emphasis on the word of God to the people of God. As Haggai uses the phrases, thus says the Lord and the Lord of hosts many times. He's the God who speaks and he is the God who is in control. The word of God 
and the Lord of hosts. It's his word, his power for his people, ultimately for their joy and for God's glory. As we begin this book, remember the context in which it took place and and try to imagine what it must have felt like. God's people are taken captive by Babylon. They've forsaken the Lord and are suffering the consequences for it. They're away from their homeland. They're exiles in Babylonian captivity. Their temple, their place of worship, their covenant symbol, a part of their identity as the people of God, well, it's been destroyed by the army of Nebuchadnezzar. It was dark days for God's people, but God. God does not give up on them. God was faithful. He spoke of a remnant that would return, that God's people would come back, and the time had come. Insert Haggai. He's the first prophet to be heard after the Babylonian captivity, and he had one mission, to initiate the reconstruction of the temple of God nearly 70 years after it had been destroyed. He was a contemporary of Zechariah, and they are both mentioned in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14, which says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel. And so imagine the joy, the celebration, and anticipation of God's people at their homecoming. It's estimated that the number was about 50,000 Israelites. It was the return of the remnant. They rightly started to rebuild the temple. In doing this was the desire to reinstate proper worship and Israel's liturgical worship calendar, which included sacrifice, worship, and feasts. The temple was central to Israel's life and worship. This was top priority. From the tabernacle in Moses' time to the first temple built by Solomon, these places had the unique and special presence of God. It was a holy, it was a sacred space. And then in the New Testament, we see how Jesus dwelt or tabernacled among us, God in the flesh, and he's come into our hearts and lives and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and now we are the dwelling place of God. Amazing. And so in this context of the Old Testament, you can see the significance of the temple in Israel's worship, the dwelling place of God. Things start off really good. We read in Ezra 3 how God's people rebuilt the foundation of the temple. It was a celebration, an anticipation. They started with such great motivation to complete the task. But then something happened. Something stopped them from continuing and finishing. Ezra chapter 4, verse 4 and 24, explain how God's people became afraid and they became discouraged. You see, the Persian government now ruled over the people of Israel, and the Samaritan neighbors became concerned about the rebuilding project. They wanted to slow down their work and frustrate their progress, so they appealed to the governing authorities. And it was that opposition that played a part in making Israel stop the rebuild. But as we see in the book of Haggai, God's people then shift their focus from the priority of the temple to their own priorities. They lost focus. It's observed that after the foundation of the temple was started, the rebuilding stopped for some 16 years. 16 years! Talk about procrastination. I mean, I admit, I have some home projects that have been sitting around for a while. But this isn't about some fixer-upper. This isn't the 91 freeway construction that you just know is going to take forever. This is about the worship of God, God's presence, Israel's worship, the temple, their top priority. So this number, 
16 is definitely not a sweet 16 in Israel's history, but one of sadness and sorrow. After they settled, the tragedy of their return from exile was that it seemed they were comfortable to return, ironically, shockingly, without the presence of God. Let's consider how we see these truths in the first week of our study, which covers chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. This is Haggai's first word, his first message of four, and it's one of reproof and correction. This message will then be followed by a word of support, of blessing, and of promise. But to get there, God's people needed to consider their ways. In verse 1, we see that the word of God came by the hand of Haggai. What a great description about the delivery of God's word. It's a reminder that the prophet was a messenger. Likewise, we deliver the good news of Jesus. We don't make it, we don't change it, we don't improve upon it, or even have to make it relevant or entertaining. We simply deliver the message. And verse 2 gets right to the point. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. You see, God is speaking, and yet he's quoting the people. They said the time has not yet come. In other words, they had better things to do. Why did they say this? Well, remember the external pressures they had from the government and and their neighbors. But now in Haggai, we gain further insight into this problem. As the word of the Lord says in verse 4, the people who claimed it wasn't time to rebuild the house of the Lord, they didn't have a good reason, especially when considering their own lifestyle and priorities. While God's house is in ruins and isn't rebuilt, leaving an absence in the lives of God's people, their homes were doing just fine. The description is that they were dwelling in, quote, paneled houses. What does this look like? Well, if you're like me, my first thought goes back to the old school wall paneling of those houses in the 1950s to 70s. You know what I'm talking about. You can almost smell that brown room lined with vertical wood paneling. For some of you, it just takes you right back, doesn't it? Hey, maybe that's why this mid-century decor is back in style. You never know. Well, this paneling was popular because it was cheap and easy. However, that's not what is going on in this passage. The paneled houses described here most likely refer to houses that had walls and ceilings covered with cedar wood. We're not talking cheap wood here like pine or MDF or particle board. This is less like Ikea furniture that falls apart and more like grandma's crazy heavy china cabinet that takes like six people to move. So it's likely that this is cedar wood. If you've seen wood prices lately, you know this ain't cheap. And it especially wasn't cheap back in that day, considering the manual labor involved and that they lived in a land where wood was limited. From other passages such as 1 Kings 6 and 2 Kings 7, panels were used in the temple and the royal palace. Whatever it was, here's the point. They had forsaken work on God's dwelling place to work on their own dwellings. The implication is that the people were freely spending money on their own homes while simultaneously neglecting the rebuilding of the temple. I mean, of course, the people had to rebuild their lives. They were returning home from exile, and there's nothing wrong with working and investing in your house. But the shocking contrast is that they built their furnished luxury homes at the expense of God's unfinished house. There was an intentional neglect of what matters most, that the Jews, they they lost their sight of their original plan. Imagine God's people returned from exile, from the land that was full of sin and idol worship. But now they're away from those foreign idols, back to where they can worship and rebuild the temple only to discover idols in their own hearts. Looking ahead in the next section, verse 9 says, God speaking, My house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. 
They were busy doing secondary things. It was a self-focus. And anything that takes the place of God in our lives, it's an idol. And one of the idols of our generation is the age-old idol of busyness. That's the response we so often give right away, right? Hey, man, how's it going? What have you been up to? Oh, you know, just busy, just grinding away, busy. It's interesting. We all have the same amount of time, but it's just a matter of how we use it. Do you have time for the Lord? Or does your schedule, your calendar, your busyness show that you have other priorities? Like when Jesus was at the home of Mary and Martha in Luke 10, we can be like Martha, easily distracted and busy, instead of being like Mary, who focus on the one thing that is needed, sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to what he said. As we see in this passage, the Lord asks such a pointed question, what time is it? Man, what a question. No, not what time of the day it is. Even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? What time is it in your life, your focus, your priorities, your worship of God? God's people said that the time had not yet come, and this was 16 years later. But God's response is that it was not time for them to dwell, but for them to build. The answer to the question, is it a time for, is verse 5, consider your ways. This is a call to repentance. What did their ways look like? Verse 6 says that they sowed much, but harvested little. They ate, but never ate enough. They drank, but were never satisfied. They were clothed, but never warm. And then to give such a strong visual image, verse 6 concludes by saying that they earned wages only to put them into a bag with holes. I mean, I'm sure we've all dropped money out of our pockets, but imagine that being the description of what happens to all your money. You're holding it, investing it, that ultimately it's going to fall through. The return on their investment in their paneled homes was terrible in comparison to what the ROI could have been in rebuilding the temple and having restored worship in their community and the life of God's people. Verses 10 and 11 describe conditions of a drought, a lack of rain or produce. And this wasn't random. God says, I have called for a drought on the land. And what was the result? By focusing on themselves, by not following God's ways and commands, they failed to flourish. When we walk in disobedience, we don't experience life the way God intended it. This doesn't mean that when we obey the Lord, everything's easy and good. Rather, it's the basic principle that God designed this world in such a way that it functions best when we follow his commands. And as we see throughout the Old Testament, the people would experience blessings for faithfulness to the covenant or the consequences for their sin, covenant consequences of disobedience. They needed to consider their ways, and they needed to consider God's ways. In this, we see true repentance, and it's a great example for us to follow. That repentance is returning to God, which leads to rejoicing in God. First, God's people had to recognize their sin. God used a prophet, a person, to show them their wrong. Haggai. Thank God for the people that he brings into our lives to help us follow him. And through the contrast between their wrong priorities and their failed responsibilities as God's people, they recognized their sin. They had pressure on the outside and idolatry on the inside, but they were able to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord. Second, a recognition of sin leads to a remorse of sin. Repentance isn't just being sorry that you were caught or exposed. It's true sorrow for sin, that you've sinned against God. Why did they feel comfortable disobeying God while dwelling in their homes? 
It's because they had a small view of sin and a small view of the holiness of God. They were functionally living life without God, but God called them to consider their ways. This is such a great statement for us to meditate on. Is it a time for this? Is it a time for that? Consider your ways. This is a heart check, a self-analysis to honestly look at your priorities and your focus. And here we see repentance as verses 12 and 13 will show that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord and they feared the Lord. Third, remorse of sin leads to a renewal from sin. What we see in this story is that the physical reconstruction of the temple actually showed a spiritual reconstruction. It was for the temple to be rebuilt and for their lives to be rebuilt around the worship of God, not self. Aren't you thankful that our God is a God of second chances and he invites us to repent? We get to repent and have our lives rebuilt in God's ways. As God renews us, we take the practical steps to remove sin and to replace it with godly virtues. You see, repentance is a change of the heart that leads to actions of the hands. Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians 3 describe this as putting off sin and putting on godly virtues. Notice that the call to repentance in Haggai was followed with a call to action in verse 8 to go up to the hills, to bring wood, and to build the house. They were to stop their misdirected priorities and focus on what mattered most. And verse 8 shows us the intended result. God speaking, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. In chapter 2, verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give peace. This is the true result of repentance. It's rejoicing. Recognition of sin, remorse for sin, renewal from sin, removal and replacement of sin ultimately and finally leads us to rejoicing over forgiven sin. God is glorified and his people are satisfied. God's glory is known and his peace is received. The call for God's people to repent and to rebuild in Haggai ultimately leads us to the greatest and final sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who dared to claim, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus lived a perfect life, one that his people could never live. He died a sacrificial death, taking our sins upon him and giving us his righteousness. And three days later, he rose again in victory. He rules and reigns and will one day return. He defeated our sin and now invites us to come to him in faith and repentance. And when you do this, you realize this great truth, that Jesus is a greater savior than you are a sinner. And that is good news. He loves you and he's with you and he's for you. And as you keep coming to him, he will keep rebuilding your life to look more and more like his. In response to God's word, May you consider your ways in repentance and then consider God's ways of forgiveness and restoration and rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.